Welcome to the Art of Wet AMD, Drug Choice and the Latest Data, a mini-series from New Retina Radio. Dr. Arshad Kanani leads a roundtable discussion about modern approaches to wet AMD therapy with Drs. Christopher Fuller, Nicholas London, and Christina Wang. This is an editorially independent podcast supported by Novartis. Now, let's join the discussion. Hello and welcome everyone. Uh, to the first episode of Wet AMD, The Art of Drug Choice and the Latest Data. Uh, I have the pleasure of having three great faculty members here, uh, Christina Wang from Baylor College of Medicine, Chris Fuller from uh, Texas Retina Associates in Lubbock, Texas, and Nicholas J. London from San Diego. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for having us, Arshad. Thanks, Arshad. So this is uh, episode one of four. Today we'll discuss tactics for switching wet AMD patients to different drugs, and then also review a case with Dr. Fuller after the break. In future episodes, we'll discuss phase three data, pipeline candidates, and we'll wrap up uh, the series with a discussion of safety, which we all know is very crucial um, in this day and age. So now let's get into our uh, review of therapeutic options for wet AMD. Christina, I'm gonna start with you first. How are you treating your patients uh, with uh, Naive at AMD uh, in your clinic? Well, Arshad, uh, things haven't really changed uh, given the current circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic. I still am treating with anti-VEGF agents. I have used all the agents that we currently have available on market. And like 90% of American retina specialists, I use Treat and Extend. We've continued that. We haven't decreased treatment frequency. We actually haven't even reduced our wet AMD uh, treatment, I'm sorry, visit uh, frequency either. But what we have done is try to streamline as best as possible in our clinics, the patient's visit so that they're in and out as quickly as possible. And I, I think that's probably what most people are doing uh, right now. Um, but yeah, I uh, feel like it's been going just as kind of business as usual, except for just a couple of minor changes in our office in terms of imaging them with OCT right when they get into the door and then working them up from the same room so that there's less contact with other parts of the office. So it sounds like you have not changed your management, but you have changed your office logistics and procedures to keep the patient uh, uh, you know, not in the office for too long and get him in and out. So Nick, when you have a naive patient, um, how do you decide which agent to use? And when do you decide to switch uh, uh, the anti-VEGF agent you're using and what are your parameters? So when I have a new patient, I, um, you know, I, I assess them and I, I make a decision whether or not they're sort of your typical wet AMD or whether they've got sort of a polyphoidal variant or something else sort of unusual going on, assuming they just sort of have the typical picture of, of neovascular AMD. Um, I'll typically reach for one of the branded agents first. I, I do use Bevacizumab, but I more frequently go for one of the branded agents, either Ranibizumab or uh, Flibrocept. Uh, and I, I do, again, what Dr. Wang uh, mentioned, I start them off on treat and extend. I'll do three monthly injections and then uh, extend them out uh, based on how they're doing two weeks at a time. Uh, sometimes I'll go one week at a time if I think that they didn't have a complete response um, or if I feel like they just need a little bit of extra medication. So um, when, when do you decide to switch? Um... Oh, yeah. Um, so I don't need to switch very often. And I, I typically want to make sure that I really need to switch before I do so. So I find that the vast majority of patients are, are well controlled on whatever agent I start them off on. 
Um, so be that bevacizumab, ranibizumab, or flibercept, um, or berlicizumab, most patients do quite well. Um, if somebody has persistent fluid that is symptomatic after at least three injections with a prior agent, at that point, I'll start reconsidering and I'll think about switching at that point. But I've got a pretty high threshold for switching. All right, sounds good. And then, uh, Chris, um, what uh, makes you switch uh, to a different agent? Is it worsening fluid? Is it persistent fluid? Is it vision loss? So just tell us what are your uh, parameters to gauge disease activity in your patients with neovascular AMD? Yeah, so I'm, I'm an early adopter and have been since I started practice in 2009. And I've been a champion of durable therapy. So I was immediately intrigued uh, by ILEA when it was introduced in late 2011. And that's my primary go-to for most patients. I was kind of enamored by its Q2 dosing, which has since been revised in the packaging insert. And so assuming the patient's insurance uh, will allow them to have ILEA, I typically start with that unless it's a massive PED and I have concerns for an RPE rip. Um, I will change though in cases of tachyphylaxis, uh, intraretinal fluid, maybe less so subretinal fluid, uh, and visual decline that's not otherwise explained. So, uh, but I tend to be kind of ILEA 80 plus percent of the time for the vast majority of my patients. So what are you doing now, now that you have uh, Roloxizumab available, uh, Chris? So it seemed like you're going for ILEA, which tend to drive the retina a little bit better than other agent. Obviously, you know, in general, in trials, in terms of visual acuity, the differences are minimal, but it sounds like you are going for that punch and trying to get that anatomy control and also durability. So with Brolocizumab, um, as you said, you're an early adapter. Did you start using the drug when it uh, got approved last October? Yeah, in fact, uh, I had been talking to my patients throughout 2019 that this new drug may soon become available. And even in, I guess, November, because I didn't get an immediate shipment of Bayavu, I had samples on hand and started to kind of eagerly dispense it to my patients. And to date, I looked at my numbers today, I've done 300 plus Bayavu since January of 2020 through this afternoon. So I am using quite a bit of Bayavu and we'll talk about, I think, uh, some of the concerns about that drug later. And I have modified my criteria for choosing patients, but yeah, I'm a big fan and, and uh, it's certainly taken a chunk out of uh, kind of my ILEA load. So I agree. I think uh, for our audience, we have a safety section at the end. So the last episode is safety. So we are going to discuss uh, all the risk and benefits of different agents and upcoming treatments at that time. Right now, we are mostly focusing on therapeutic options and the regimen. And, and so, Christina, for you, what, what, are the limiting, um, what are the limitations for current agents? And especially, as you said, during the pandemic, we would like to extend these patients longer. Obviously, that's not happening. Um, and we're just trying to get them in and out. So in, in your sense, is durability the only limitation or there are more, more limitations to these agents? What would you like to see an agent that gets approved in the future in terms of uh, uh, the unmet need? I mean, I certainly think that durability is, per, is arguably the greatest unmet need in this area. Uh, we, the agents that we currently have are all very effective and we're very fortunate to have that. I mean, I think they, they really revolutionized the entire management of wet AMD. But the problem is, is that, and even with a flibrocept, I'll say, you know, when you look at broad, larger studies, the durability differences between the agents are, are minimal at best. And so the problem is, is that these patients end up having a huge treatment burden. 
and then they're not able to keep up with the huge treatment burden. And as a result, they do end up suffering visual consequences because of undertreatment. So I do think that that's still a big issue. And that's why there's this quest right now in uh, big pharma. You know, there's a quest to see what we can do, whether it's to drive a new compound that has longer durability because of molecular properties, or if we're trying to design a device that can elute over a long time, or even going to the next level and looking at gene therapy. And I know some of those things we're gonna talk about later, um, but that's not the only unmet need, Arshad, going back to your question. I, I do think that the imperfect ability to have effect is also an issue. So not all agents work for all AMD patients. And we've seen that there are patients who continue to be refractory, even if you're injecting every four weeks. I know some of my colleagues even inject more frequently than that in order to keep their patients under good control. So I think that there's definitely still room in our toolbox for new agents, new mechanisms of action that can perhaps target other components of the pathway and the pathogenesis of wet AMD. I think those are excellent points, uh, Christine. I think durability is probably the biggest unmet need, but there's a good subset of patients that actually are not controlled even with monthly uh, anti-VEGF injections. So Nick, like what is, uh, so you mentioned earlier, you have some tolerance for fluid, but what is your, um, um, you know, threshold in terms of tolerating fluid? And what, what are your criteria uh, in terms of seeing that this patient is not controlled? Is it vision? Like if they're on monthly injection, they have fluid, they're losing vision. Is that what you look for? Or you guide your treatment based on OCT? Because personally, I mean, vision can fluctuate quite a bit in, in real world, especially, you know, you and I participate in the trial and so is the rest of the faculty members here. You know, ETDRS is more accurate. Even that fluctuates and it takes time. So tell me what parameters are you using in your uh, practice to really figure out if this patient's disease is controlled or not? And if it's not, what are you doing about it? Yeah, Arshad, I think that's a really good question. And that's sort of where the art of this comes in is sort of figuring out if what you're doing is working based on the data that you have at, at hand. And the data, as you mentioned, you've got the OCT, so you can look for fluid, either subretinal fluid or intraretinal fluid. And, and I think we all have some thoughts on that, but I, in general, am more concerned about intraretinal fluid than subretinal fluid. I'm willing to tolerate subretinal fluid a little bit more. I certainly look at their visual acuity. And, and as you said, the visual acuity tends to fluctuate. It's what patients sort of cling on to each time. They'll say, oh, I was 20, 40 last time, and now I'm 20, 50 plus one. And I always tell them to take that with a grain of salt, because as we know, that changes quite a bit based on testing parameters, the technician who tests them, whether or not they may have slept well the night before, or who knows, probably a handful of parameters that affect an individual uh, visual acuity on, on one testing visit. I always look at those things, and then I ask the patient how they're doing. You know, I think that's a very important data point that you know, that maybe we don't pay enough attention to. I say, are, you know, are you doing well? Are you happy? You're, you're measuring 2040 today, which is slightly better or slightly worse than your last visit. How do you feel you're doing? And if patients feel that they're doing worse, and if the fluid's increased and we're measuring a decline on, on the chart, then I know that I need to adjust something. Uh, in general, I'll be willing to tolerate a little bit of fluctuation in fluid and a little bit of fluctuation in visual acuity if the patient feels like they're doing perfectly fine. It's hard to take a patient who feels like they're doing fantastic and, and make them better. So I, I add in that sort of subjective patient assessment of how they're doing as, as well. I got it. And then what, what do you do? Um, 
So, you know, you said that you really don't switch much. So if you had a patient, let's say, receive monthly injection with a lot of fluid and 20, 40, 20, 50 vision, is that, is that a sign of not uh, good control? And would you consider switching them to a more potent agent? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they, I know when I said I don't switch a lot, it's because the agents that we, we use are so effective. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If I start them on, you know, Q4 ranibizumab and then do a treat and extend, they tend to do well and we'll find out whatever threshold they need to stay at. Um, and, you know, I'm willing to tolerate some fluid. I, again, I'm willing to tolerate some subretinal fluid as long as they're not having symptoms or visual acuity decline. I'm a little less tolerant of intraretinal fluid. If I see that, you know, and I, especially if I see it as a trend, usually it, it increases just slightly each time if you're doing a treat and extend regimen. I, I tell patients that this is a trend that we don't want to continue, that if we let it continue, they're likely going to have a visual acuity decline if we, if we go too long. Got it. So, you know, you, you made an interesting point. Your patients notice your visual acuity. In West Texas and Reno, they just asked me, hey, doc, what do you think is going on? You know, we can't really rely on visual acuity. Is that true, Chris? Uh, yeah, this is, uh, I'm about the least paternalistic physician on the planet. I'm a big believer in patient empowerment and I'll often say, hey, we have these new drugs and let me tell you the pros and cons. And these 90 year olds from, you know, Post and Slayton and Florida, Texas, that some of you guys have never heard of, they just say, I have. Doc, <laughs> yeah, say, Doc, what would you do? Just do what you want to do. Um, and so, yeah, they're not as much fixated on vision. They're more fixated on how they function. And a lot of the decision making is left to me for better or for worse. And so, yeah, it's definitely, and I practiced in Houston where Christina is for five years. And it's a little bit different subset of patients that you get in a large metropolis like that which no, is not to denigrate the people, the fine citizens of West Texas, it's just the reality. Yeah, no, Chris, you bring up a good point. So has your practice changed in terms of choosing a treatment regimen or an agent uh, because of the pandemic or it really hasn't changed and you are just going for the durability as you said earlier? You know, there's, there's 18 or 19 of us now, you know, we're spread across, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, Wichita Falls. And so I'm kind of, you know, secluded here probably on purpose in West Texas. And so I'm kind of divorced with what the, you know, bigger names like, you know, Ash Abbey and, you know, Wayne Solly are doing in our main offices. Like, I mean, we all have our pet favorites. And uh, so as a practice, we haven't adopted any sort of uniform position on drug choice or, you know, follow-up visits. Although in Dallas, they tend to be a little bit more panicky about COVID than we were out here in West Texas. Got it. So it sounds like your practice has not changed. It sounds like nobody's practice has changed in terms of managing patients, but we have all uh, changed how we are running our offices and taking precautions to um, keep uh, you know, our staff and our patients safe in this uh, pandemic. So great discussion. Uh, thank you to all three of you. Um, we're now gonna take a short break and, and we'll be back with a case in a minute. Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to the first episode of Vet AMD, The Art of Drug Choice and the Latest Data. Now we're gonna have a case from Dr. Fuller. Chris, uh, go ahead, present your case, please. Sure, uh, thank you for inviting me, Arshad. This is an 81-year-old male farmer and widower who resides in a tiny town of less than 1,000 inhabitants in the windswept panhandle of Texas. In early 2014, well before my arrival at Texas Retina, he was referred with long simmering exudative macular degeneration in his left eye that had already pocked the macula with fibrosis. Avastin was given, which was effective in drying the retina, but the vision was little improved. Uh, vision has remained 2400 and does to this day. And here you can see uh, on presentation, the poor non-subject eye, 2400, uh, already with fibrosis and significant intraretinal fluid. 
uh, nicely resolved after 4A Vastin, but with little visual gain due to the outer retinal architectural changes. Uh, routine follow-up that November, again before my time, revealed neovascular changes that appeared ominous in the heretofore uninvolved fellow eye. You can see subretinal fluid in a focal area of leakage just superior to the foveary vascular zone in those photos. Visual acuity was 20-30 plus 2, and Avastin was given. Uh, the patient, uh, and to this day, he does the same burst of form, firm commitment to, quote, forever intravitreal therapy, and he dutifully submitted to a diet of either monthly or bimonthly injection based on the vagaries of his fluid over the next several years. Uh, this patient remains very active. Uh, his daughter is a nurse who I know very well. He putters about in his tractor and still drives the small roads of his small town. Uh, and for the most part, even though I'm, I'm an Aaliyah guy, uh, therapy largely consisted of a Vastin because I saw no uh, benefit in durability when I did switch him to Aaliyah on a few occasions. Again, for many years, monthly by monthly, Avastin proved a winning strategy. However, in the latter half of 2018, despite this dutiful compliance, the patient's vision began to flag and his retina became newly and increasingly wet, and it demonstrated recalcitrance to be healed by conventional interventions. By September of 2018, and he was certainly under my care at this time, vision in the right eye had dipped to 2080. And this is meaningful and ominous in Texas because 2070 is required in your better sighted eye to drive legally. So faced by this growing hillock of intraretinal fluid, ILEA was given in quick succession at monthly intervals, but did little to stem the worsening fluid and vision. Avastin was given three weeks later, often give a quote super dose, either one or two or three weeks in the patient, but this also failed to be of any effect. Uh, vision uh, did improve to 2070, however, the macular anatomy looked even worse. And here you can see in November of 2018, the patient had entered the realms of legal blindness. This was a 2200I with significant cystic fluid and a minute epiretinal membrane that had been present for some time and was likely not uh, playing much of a role in the persistent fluid. So given this monumental cystic edema present in my love affair with Ozerdex since its introduction in 2010, I decided to use Ozerdex in this patient and gave it to him in late 2018. Lo and behold, a miraculous drying effect took place with a similarly miraculous improvement in vision. Here just, what is it, eight days later, visual acuity had rebounded to 2060 plus one and the patient was ecstatic. Uh, at that time, I did not dose the patients and simply chose to cautiously watch the Ozerdex uh, disintegrate. Uh, but again, it was required on March 12th, two and a half months later on May 28th, and then again in a three month visit on August 20th. Uh, we had begun to hedge our bets at that time, administering either ILEA or Avastin between Ozerdex visits, as I was fearful of a major subretinal bleed in an elderly gentleman on multiple anticoagulants who was a vasculopath. By late 2019, the patient's edema was again in full flower, and this despite being dosed with supplemental Avastin on October and November 12th. Uh, Bayavu was recently approved, and I had a sample in hand, and I decided to try this new wonder drug. And I was very pleased with the initial results. Here we are, his uh, one month follow-up visual acuity had improved by a line and a half with the excellent uh, restoration of normal, nearly dry macular anatomy. The following month witnessed further visual recovery. He was now 2060 plus two, and also the restocking of Bayavu in our clinic. A uh, little we do, did we know, but COVID was making its destructive rounds in China at the time, but few of us could have predicted 
the havoc it would bring to our country and kind of the shuttering of clinics and business as usual for many Americans. So I again administered Bayavu and set an appointment for seven weeks distant. However, this time Bayavu was not as successful, although we did go longer and the fluid returned. Uh, we returned to Ozerdex at this time and again had similar happy drying results with improvement in vision. Uh, visual acuity was 2050 minus two, eight weeks after that Ozerdex. And this monocular patient, to his credit, has insisted on presenting in clinic every four weeks uh, for supplemental therapy with ILEA between dose steroid. A six Ozerdex was administered in late June, and the patient's right macular remains dry and competently sighted at 2050 at the time of this writing. He's still driving, and I saw him again approximately a week ago. And so our plan at present is to continue with Ozerdex on an as-needed basis with recurrence of edema and to inject either Avastin or ILEA in the interim. Excellent case, Chris, I tell you. Very well managed, So I have a couple of questions uh, for you and the panel. So I'll start with Christina. So Christina, it's very interesting that you have a great response to Ozerdex as well as a great response to BioView. It seems like uh, there is like an anti-VEGF component to it and there is an inflammatory component to it. What are your thoughts on uh, this case? An excellent case from Chris. Yeah, Chris, that was a great case, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. It's, uh, I applaud you for really thinking outside the box and, and turning to a drug that most people, I think, wouldn't even consider for somebody with neovascular AMD. I have heard of a handful of case reports, I haven't tried it myself, um, of people having success with steroid treatment. So obviously, it worked great for your patient, and I think you really made a big impact, especially in a monocular patient. Um, to me, pathophysiologically, it, it makes sense. You know, I think there probably is, and we know there's an inflammatory component of AMD. Now, whether that's targeted in such a way with steroids, um, uh, you know, hasn't been looked at in, in a large study, and that's why steroids generally aren't considered standard of care and first-line therapy for neovascular AMD. But I totally understand, you know, um, thinking about trying that in someone who's refractory to everything else and who's monocular, where there's really high stakes to lose. My question for Chris would be really, um, did you consider potentially another etiology of CME, you know, maybe a twig RVO or something like that? I imagine you went through the list uh, because yeah. it's interesting that it did respond both to anti-VEGF and steroids so well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I do very few angiograms, uh, but we did image him uh, when he had this significant, yeah, I apologize for not including that slide, uh, but I could deduce no other cause. I do have handful of patients and I, I wonder about this with, early fibrosis, RPE dysfunction, uh, are those retinas more predisposed to becoming edematous? And in, in those patients, because he's not the only one I treat with twin therapy, uh, I have some success. And again, maybe I'm missing some subtle second pathology, and it's certainly a good thought, but I didn't find any or detect any in this particular patient. That's great. And the other thing I'll just uh, comment on is, you know, these monocular patients are a headache because you don't want to take too much risk because they only have one eye, but you also want to do everything you can because they only have one eye and that's what they're totally dependent on. So I think these choices can be uh, really tough when you're faced with them, but uh, great case. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I'm a steroid swashbuckler, but even I have a little bit of pause in an yeah. elderly monocular patient sticking yeah. a you know, 22 gauge needle, yeah. um, but uh, so far so good. Yeah, fantastic. I think, and, and Nick, I have a, yeah. you're an excellent surgeon and uh, you know, your skills are great. So I did see an epiretinal membrane um, when he started to develop cystoid macular edema. I'll, I'll, I'll send him his way right now. Right now. Okay. <laughs> it's a little too far, but Nick, uh, 
would, I mean, we see CME all the time with ERM, sometimes subtle and sometimes very tight. So when would you consider uh, doing appeal on this patient? Obviously it's a monocular patient and yeah. you have to look at risk benefit, uh, you know, here, but what, what are your thoughts in patients in general who have ERM and have CME? Now, it's a great question, and Chris, a great, great thought-provoking case. Uh, good job presenting it as well. Um, you know, I had a very similar patient who I see now probably every two weeks, um, and he had, he was monocular. He had a membrane peel in his other eye at another institution that went poorly and, and does not seize 2,400 or so in his other eye, and had AMD with a, a thickening ERM over time in his residual eye, and when I first inherited him from uh, Paul Ternambi, he um, was about 2050 or so. And we, you know, we kept treating his AMD monthly injections and the ERM just kept getting worse. So we, we had the same exact discussion. It was much worse than, than what your patient here had. And I eventually did peel it. Um, I had to wait until he got to about 2200, um, I think is what we waited until. And now he's, uh, we peeled it and now he's back at 2040. So it does go really well sometimes, but I applaud you for ignoring it. I think that's absolutely the right decision here. I do wonder if it's playing a role though. I mean, it's probably irritating the, the surface of the retina, maybe, you know, enhancing a little bit of inflammation back there. I, I'm sure it has something to do with the cystoid edema that's presenting there. Um, I think it's fascinating that the Ozodex was so effective, whereas the anti-VEGF injection really at least and besides B of you had very little effect. Um, I was wondering a couple of things. I was wondering if you brought the patient back two weeks after any of the anti-VEGF injections that did not work to see if there was any effect at all. I very commonly will do that with patients that are poor or suboptimal responders. I'll say, hey, at two weeks or at least getting a little fill-up here. And I did so with him and had no such you know, luck. Okay. Or could you get uh, a Luvian approved for somebody like this? I, I have my secret dark ways of doing so. I am a huge Luvian user. Um, <laughs> and we have discussed that. Uh, okay. In fact, uh, a little side note, his left eye, uh, the lens went tumbling into the back of the eye two months ago, which has poor vision. I had to rescue it and do a Yamane fixation. Yep. And now he likes that eye enough. He wants me to remove the floaters from this eye we've been discussing. And I nice. said, absolutely not. Um, but yeah, I do surgery occasionally on AMD patients with ERMs, but it would have to be pretty egregious and it would have to hopefully be someone who wasn't monocular. That's, that's I think, a big roll of the dice, especially when we're finding at least current satisfaction with Ozardex periodically. But I love your thought about Alluvian. I've, I've lobbied for Alamera to give me some samples so I can you know play around with it a little bit, but uh, no such luck today. What, yeah. Why do you think B of you worked when none of the other anti-VEGF agents worked at all? What do you think special about B of you in this case? I, I don't know. I've wondered about that. And again, it didn't work perfectly. He had a good first response at four weeks, but he had had, you know, for, you know, years, he had had a response with ILEA and Avastin. So I don't know if there's a component of tachyphylaxis, the ERM, as you mentioned, there probably is some kind of undercurrent of inflammation. Um, and again, I was kind of privately disappointed that at seven weeks, the fluid had recurred, but I wanted to go back to the winning strategy as did he. So we kind of returned to steroid. I mean, I think that goes to the point, Nick, of what I said earlier about having more drugs in the medicine cabinet, you know, because we don't quite understand why certain patients respond to certain medications over others. Rolocizumab, as we've seen from the Hawk and Harrier trial, does have a better drying effect, it seems, than some of the other agents. So perhaps that's why. Um, but I think there's a lot that we still don't fully understand about why you know, certain people dry out and some people don't. 
I think, hey, Nick, yeah. can I ask you a question? Yeah. You can educate me. This came up with a partner of mine in Dallas. If you were to operate on this gentleman and you saw the effect he had had with Ozerdex, would you inject him two or three weeks before surgery to peel a flat macula or would you just kind of go as is? I would probably not do an Ozodex right before. I would probably, you know, if you're doing anti-VEGF, I'd probably get that on board two to four weeks prior to surgery. I would be worried. I, you know, I have not done surgery when an Ozodex been on board, but I would be worried about eating the implant during surgery accidentally. Um, you, some of you may have, may have done surgery already with an Ozodex. Yeah, there, you know. I've done that, uh, Nick, and I agree with you. I think you know, you have to eat the implant. It's very hard to salvage it. Uh, that being said, I'm actually, Chris, a big fan of uh, making the anatomy normal before I peel. So I don't have, have to put gas or end up with a lamellar hole or something like that. But great discussion, intriguing case. I want to remind our audience to check the images out uh, from Chris's case on itube.net. I also want to remind our audience that there are more episodes are forthcoming and then the next episode, we will review phase three data in wet AMD. So thanks again uh, to my great faculty here. And thank you for the listeners. This is the end of the first episode. Goodbye. <laughs>